0: Uh, Earlier on, if you were here this morning, I know uh, a number of you were, we reflected on the conclusion of Solomon's life and his reign as the uh, third king in Israel. And one of the the key thoughts or core phrases we reflected on was this, that it's not just how you start that matters, it's how you finish that really counts. And to all intents and purposes, Solomon, despite his God-given wisdom, did not finish well. He appeared to descend into spiritual freefall. And we looked at some of the possible reasons for that this morning, and here were the three that we suggested. Well, after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam takes over. And very early on, it becomes apparent that wisdom is not genetic. And Rehoboam quickly make some rather foolish decisions and as a result 10 of the tribes of Israel rebel and for the first time the country is split into two it's no longer a united kingdom there's now north and south Israel and Judah and Solomon's son Rehoboam is king in the southern region and Jeroboam is king in the north. And for a while, a whole bunch of kings come and go. Some of them are okay, but most of them are not great. And tonight what we want to do is we're going to pick up the story whenever Ahab was the king of Israel. Now, he was the seventh king in the divided kingdom. And he ruled for 22 years. And I just want to make three sort of initial introductory comments. And the first is this. The reason that we're pausing here in the story, and as, as Trevor has said, and if you're visiting Windsor, what we're doing as a church is we're working our way right through the big story of the Bible in 2011. That, that We're just going from Genesis right through to Revelation. And the reason that we're pausing here is because Ahab's reign forms the backdrop for Elijah. And for his role in the story. The second reason is, and as it says, those of you who are following the E100 book, this is the first line in the reading for these chapters. If Solomon opened the door just a crack to idolatry, Ahab kicked it right in. And under Ahab, what you discover is a nation that is in danger of spiritual freefall. Solomon went into spiritual freefall, but under Ahab, the whole nation is in danger of it. And the third thing is this, that Ahab is married to the infamous and highly influential in all the wrong ways, Jezebel. Who, according to one commentator, combined an evangelical zeal for Baal worship with a vindictive streak and the temper of a bull hippo with a toothache. Which I love a typical Nick Page style, but she was a formidable Woman, And that's why Ahab's story is really worth looking at. So let's turn to 1 Kings 17. It's page 358 in the the Bibles that are in the pews and I'd really uh, encourage you to turn there because really what I'm going to do tonight is what I often do and what I've been doing in this series. I'm just going to walk you through three chapters. And I'm just going to tell the story. And I'm going to draw your attention to a few issues. And at the very end of the service, I've got a number of questions that I'm just going to leave with you. And I've got copies of the questions. And really what I want you to do is just listen to the story, engage with it. I know some of you are familiar with it. Some of you may not be. But just engage with it. Then take these questions away and reflect on it for yourself. Reflect on it for yourself. I don't want to get in the way of God's word. I just want the Bible to speak into our lives this evening. So look at verse 1. Because what you discover is that Elijah has an ominous message for the king. He says there's going to be no Jew, that's with a D, or reign in the land for the foreseeable future. Or at least until God decides otherwise. And then we read about a couple of really interesting events in Elijah's life. The first is that he's fed by birds. Ravens to be precise. And then he goes on to perform the first recorded act in scripture, Of someone raising someone from the dead. And as a result of that, one observer comments, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. This really establishes Elijah. It's impressive reputation, great credentials. You're a man of God. And what you say. The word of God that comes from your mouth is true. Jump now down to the next chapter, verse 16. 1 Kings eighteen sixteen, Because Elijah's next meeting with Ahab takes place three years later. And the king wastes no time in saying to Elijah, you're a troublemaker in Israel. And the reason he says that is because the king is convinced that the reason there has been no rain is the prophet's fault. But Elijah quickly turns the tables on the king and informs him, listen, you're the reason for the trouble. And here's why. You have abandoned the Lord's commands. And you have followed the Baals. And then Elijah sticks his neck out. Or to be more accurate, he sticks God's neck out, so to speak. Because he suggests a showdown. Between the Lord and Baal. A showdown that will leave everybody with a definite choice either one or the other. But you can no longer have both. It's time to decide. It's time to stop wavering between two opinions. Here's what he says How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. It's either or. And you've got to make up your mind. You've got to choose one or the other. And you've got to stop this ridiculous mix and match religion. A bit of this, a bit of that. No commitment in any direction. It didn't work then. And it doesn't work today. Despite what some people might think or say or teach but i want you to notice that the core issue for for elijah here is the essential combination of head and heart whoever is god follow him it's not just about knowing it's about an active pursuit and devotion You see, in some ways, it's never simply enough to acknowledge God is God. It requires a conscious decision to live life in the wake of his leading and direction. It means you've got to go after. You've got to live in submission to. It can't just be about the head. It's got to be about your heart. It's clearly not just an Old Testament idea. Jesus explicitly said, listen, whoever wants to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and do what? Follow me. Head, heart. If the Lord is God, says Elijah, follow him. And the last phrase of verse 22, have a look at, it's fascinating. Because having laid down the challenge and presented the reality, the people say this, or that we read, but the people said nothing. And you can look at this in a couple of ways. One is there's nothing more to say. Allegedly, you're right. It is decision time. No more talk. It's one or the other. Another way you can look at it is that some people never like it when they're faced with an either or decision when it comes to God. And so rather than talk about it, they opt. For silence. Gotta choose. And in terms of the venue for the showdown. Elijah chooses Mount Carmel. But the two sides seem rather imbalanced. It's 450 prophets of Baal. Plus 400 prophets of Asherah. In the blue corner. And Elijah on his own in the red. The interesting thing for me about this is there's no further mention of the 400 prophets of Asherah. So I have no idea whether they just decided not to show up. But whatever way you look at it, it's still a lot versus a little. 450 versus one. And Elijah then goes on to explain the contest. There's two bulls. Baal's prophet, you can go first. Choose a bull, cut it up, lay it in the wood. I'll take the other one. I'll do the same, I'll lay it in the wood, but none of us can set it on fire. What we've got to do is call on our God. And whichever one answers with fire, he's God. And everyone agrees to the terms and the conditions. And the prophets of Baal agree to go first. And it's worth noting that Baal was considered to be a storm god, so he ought to have been able to conjure up some lightning. Although, given the fact that there'd been no rain in the land for three years, it seems he was rather impotent and relatively useless when it came to producing anything by way of a climate change. But for ours, it says in the text, for ours the prophets call on Baal, from morning to noon. But as verse 26 says, there's no response. No answer. Nothing. And so it's time to up the activity. And so they begin to dance. And at this point, Elijah engages in a bit of competitive banter. He taunts the opposition. Look at verse 27. This is brilliant. I'm not sure if you're really ever allowed to be sarcastic, but Elijah was. Because what he says is, hey, listen, do you know something? Maybe Beal's lost in thought. Maybe he's too busy. Maybe he's off traveling. Or maybe... He simply dozed off. And the prophets react by turning up the volume. And they shout even louder. And they start cutting themselves. They get desperate. And more hours passed. And in fact it's now approaching time for the evening sacrifice. But still nothing. Verse 29. This time it says no response. No answer. No one paid attention. Time's up. They've had their chance. It's now Elijah's turn. And he starts by rebuilding the altar of the Lord, which had probably been destroyed and dismantled by Jezebel or by her agents. He digs a trench around it. He lays the wood on it. He cuts the second bull up. He places it on the altar. And then, just to stack the deck against himself... He suggests that the bull and the wood get soaked in 12 jugfuls of water. And then he steps forward. And he prays. Look at verses 36 and 37 with me of chapter 18. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you are Lord, that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back to you. And immediately... He finishes praying, fire falls, and it doesn't just burn up the sacrifice, it is so intense that it consumes everything the bull, the wood, the stones of the altar, the soil, and the water. And the contest is over, and the results are in, and there's no doubt regarding the winner. And what happens? People hit the ground. They lie prostrate and they cry, the Lord, he is God. And they repeat it, the Lord, he is God. There's no more wavering. There's no longer two opinions. There's only one. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah then does what he believes is his social responsibility. And this will come across as harsh does. See, in Exodus 20, it says... Whoever sacrifices to any other God other than the Lord must be destroyed. And so Elijah sanctions the slaughter of 450 prophets of Baal. And it's at this point that the 400 prophets of Asher are probably glad they didn't turn up. And Elijah then speaks to the king. And he says, rain's going to fall. Heavy rain. And then Elijah goes back up, Carmel, or at least to the top of it is what it seems, and he prays for it. And nothing happens. At least initially, nothing happens. And Elijah sends a servant to go out to sea and to suss out if there are any gathering dark clouds. The servant comes back and says no. Six times he sends him out. Six times he comes back nothing. And then at the seventh fluke, the servant returns and says, listen a tiny cloud the size of a man's hand is rising from the sea. And so Elijah tells Ahab to head for Jezreel and he says, you've got to go quick before you get pummeled by a torrential downpour. And Ahab jumps into his chariot and he rides off towards Jezreel and amazingly Elijah is given superhuman powers and he is able to run ahead of Ahab in his chariot. How does that work? And Ahab gets back to Jezreel and he tells Jezebel what's happened. And despite the seemingly conclusive proof regarding God, she's not convinced. And you see, it appears that some people never will accept certain realities no matter how much evidence they're given and Jezebel turns around and she pronounces a royal death sentence over Elijah that his passion for God has put him at risk and his faith and his courage have made him a wanted enemy of the state and today in our world there are lots of people living in that situation and Elijah sees the wanted poster And fear sets in. And he runs for his life. Which in some ways is really strange. And I don't understand this. Why? Given what he has just seen his God can do. Why should Elijah be afraid of anyone? And Elijah keeps running and he just runs and he runs until he reaches the wilderness. And he sits down and he prays. And what does he pray this time? I want to die want to die God and he's in a dark place and he's distressed and he's dismayed and he says I've had enough Lord you ever prayed that I've had enough Lord take my life and God doesn't and in the past handful of verses you discover a real key lesson regarding prayer and for me this is so helpful that when it comes to prayer, there are immediate answers, delayed responses, refused requests. There is yes, wait, no. On Mount Carmel, allege a praise and fire falls instantly. Immediate answer. Back on Carmel a little later, allege a for rain. And six times his servant goes looking and finds nothing. Seventh time, a cloud emerges, delayed response. And finally, here in the desert, Elijah prays for death, and his request is refused. And somehow we all know that is exactly the way prayer works. Or to be more accurate, that is how God works in response to my prayer. Sometimes we experience quick answers, other times we seem to pray for ages, and there's no change in our circumstances. And then there are those occasions whenever we just get a point-blank refusal. And such is the beauty and the joy and the frustration of prayer. And Elijah falls asleep. But in that dark place, God dispatches an agent. And an agent brings sustenance into Elijah's situation. And it's not the only time this happens. Happened to Hagar back in Genesis 21. Banished along with Ishmael to the desert with nothing to eat. She can't bear to watch her son die. And she goes over and begins to cry her heart out. And God sends an angel to her. And what about Jesus? Forty days in the wilderness, tested to the limit. And as he sits in that barren place, God sends angels to minister to him. Three examples of people in arid, dry difficult places finding God finding hope and renewed strength and you know what that does for me it inspires me to pray for others to pray that God would minister into their dark place into their despair into their distress and he did it for Elijah and he did it for Hagar and he did it for Jesus and I believe he can do it for and I can think of at least one person I would love God to do it for and whether he chooses to minister into their situation with an angel that's up to him but that he would just minister into them in such a dark place that they're at at the moment and Elijah gets up and talk about renewed strength because he legs it for 40 days and 40 nights he just keeps going until he reaches Mount Horeb Which is the place where Moses met God and received the ten words. And Horeb is generally thought to be an alternative name for Sinai. And Elijah spends a night in the cave. And then it says the word of the Lord. Now it doesn't say the Lord came and questioned him. It says the word of the Lord questions him. Which, thank God, continues to be an ongoing feature of God's Word that it continues to question and investigate and probe and disturb. And the Word of the Lord says, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's a great question. What are you doing here this evening? And Elijah answers. And then God promises to pass by, just like he did with Moses in Exodus 33. And we read that a powerful wind erupts, and it shatters rocks in its wake, but God is not in the wind. And then an earthquake shakes the mountain of horror, but God is not in the earthquake. And then a fire breaks out, but God is not in the fire. But finally, there's a what. What comes next? And various translations capture this in different ways. And the truth is, this phrase would seem to be beyond us. So the NIV has it that after the fire came, a gentle whisper. And the King James has that after the fire came, a still, small voice. The contemporary English version says after the fire came, a gentle breeze. But recent (coughs) opinion suggests there's no voice, no sound. But an eerie silence lined with a sense of holiness. And so the NRSV says this, and I love it that after the fire came a sound of sheer silence. And I don't want to make too much of this, but it does suggest that sometimes the place we discover God is in the silence. And we live in a society where we're surrounded by noise. And therefore to experience silence today is so rare. In fact, I want to suggest we've almost developed an aversion to silence. It's uncomfortable. And yet it is potentially important because God can be found there. And a couple of years ago as we looked at the various spiritual disciplines or holy habits including silence and solitude we made the point that silence creates the space the context the environment where we are able to hear and discern and detect what God might be saying to us and I love this quote from Mother Teresa we need to find God and he cannot be found in noise and restlessness God is a friend of silence. See how nature, trees, flowers, grass grows in silence. See the stars, the moon and the sun, how they move in silence. We need silence to be able to touch our souls. And I believe silence is an act of choice. And it's where you consciously tune out all other voices. And you tune in to God's. Because as someone has said, silence is actually a mode of activity. It's not just a refraining from speaking or undue noise, but a special form of attentiveness to God. And if silence is not a part of your life, if it's not a holy habit, then can I encourage you to consider it? Because sometimes it's in the sound of sheer silence that you will hear God speak. And Elijah did. And as God spoke into his life, he received fresh instructions and a word of encouragement. Instructions to go and anoint three people. And encouragement that despite what he thought, he wasn't on his own. If you look at verse 10 and verse 14, I love it. Elijah tells God, I'm the only one left. Actually, in verse 18, God tells him there are 7,000 in Israel who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. This movement is alive and well, Elijah. And so Elijah may not have been in a good place, but having experienced the presence of God in the silence, he receives instruction and encouragement. And if you're here tonight and you need to know what God is saying to you, And you need to hear some encouragement from God. Then can I encourage you to create space to be silent this week before him. And so as we leave this evening. And I have just told the story. And stopped at various points. Here's a list of questions. And as I say I have copies of these if anybody wants. For Elijah. The differing opinions were between Baal and God. Or the Lord. What opinions do we waver between in our context? Because, you know, Jesus went on to say, you cannot serve two masters. In that context, it's either money or God. But what is it for us? What is it for me? What are the opinions I waver between? And if the Lord is God, what does it actually mean to follow him? And why is following rather than just knowing so important? What lessons can we learn from Elijah's story regarding prayer? Pray for someone this week who desperately needs God to minister into their difficult situation. And then answer this question, why might you need to hear the sound of sheer silence? Create space this week to wait in silence and receive instructions, record them and the encouragement you receive. And how can silence be described as a mode of activity? Let's pray together, and please do ask me for a copy of those if you're interested in the way out. Father, we started off this evening by just acknowledging that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I thank you for the gift of your word that has the ability to speak into our lives. And so, God, I pray that if any of my words have got in the way of your word, that they will be quickly forgotten. And that people will take away your words tonight and reflect further upon them in silence if necessary. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.